Welcome to Impact, a podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Impact features interviews with gifted Bible teachers who will help you gain a greater understanding of Scripture so that it has a greater impact on your life. The host of Impact is Mark Jenstead, the Staff Minister for Nurture at St. Andrew. And hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. It's great to have you with us for this podcast ministry. Our guest is Dr. Mark Paustian, and we're going to talk again about Isaiah chapter 40 today. So if uh, you didn't, by chance, uh, listen to last week's episode, I would invite you to listen to that. Probably would make more sense to listen to that first, because this is part two as we look at the second half of Isaiah chapter 40. We've got a ways to go, but... Uh, I'm confident that uh, we'll be able to get through uh, the verses that we've identified today as verses we really want to dig into a little bit deeper. So we'll do that. Let's begin first with a prayer. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Amen. Welcome back. Good to be back. Before we get into Isaiah 40, how about you you tell us, uh, it can't be all work. There's got to be some play, right? Uh, (laughs) Give give us a hobby. What do you like to do in your free time for fun? Uh, Probably my one hobby is to play guitar and to rip off songs from the radio, and even now and then to write song parodies. If I'm ever up for entertainment at this wonderful college campus, that's uh, what I invest my time in. But I I love music. I love walking. Love the outdoors, for sure. I'm drawn to natural beauty. Can't tear my eyes off it. So I like to read very, very much. I love to be with my family. I'm really, more than anything else, a family guy. Very good. So, yeah. What is your favorite genre of music? I'm eclectic, I would say. Even lately, I thought, you know, country music isn't so bad if they tell a good story and so on. So that's a late-in-life kind of conversion. Okay. <laughs> but uh, not heavy metal so much, so it's not like anything goes. Very good. Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, we left off with, uh, we were talking about the, the contrast between verses 10 and 11. So let's move on to these series of rhetorical questions uh, that start in verse 12 and really go all the way through verse 14. So folks, I'm going to read these. And I always uh, encourage you, if you're able, to have your Bible open as uh, you're listening to this podcast. Uh, That works well. Otherwise, uh, take time to read through Isaiah chapter 40. Here are verses 12 through 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? So we've got a lot of uh, rhetorical questions there, Professor. Uh, What's the point Isaiah's making with those questions? Well, the one that I gravitate toward, um, as far as which one kind of pops out to me, is when he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? 
So when the Apostle Paul is sort of agonizing in the book of Romans over his countrymen, the Jews, and how many were not exactly flocking to Jesus, um, he goes through this whole three-chapter thing just dealing with that issue. And a lot of it is about the doctrine of election and God's sovereign choosing. Uh, he explains, of course, that people that have the faith of Abraham are the true Israel. And all this we find in Romans 9 to 11. But then where does he resolve this whole thing? The whole thing resolves in quoting Isaiah 40. So who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? So that's Paul before the mystery of election. We are, we are meant to be humble before a teaching like God's choosing. The words are not that hard to understand that I chose you in love in Christ before the creation of the world. Uh, we are not meant to rob ourselves of the comfort of that by applying our flawed and arrogant human reason to it. We humble ourselves before the mysteries of God. And because what the rhetorical question is saying, are you the ones going to tell God what makes sense and what doesn't and what a good God ought to do and not do? Um, God forbid would I imagine myself in that position. So we are meant to be in childlike confidence before God and bow our knees to his mysteries and not rob ourselves of the, of the phenomenal comfort of being chosen by God in Christ personally, uh, having nothing to do with us at all. So... When there are times when I don't understand, like the classic question, why some and not others, um, at those times, I, if I struggle with the fairness of God, um, those are the times that I simply have the gospel. That's when I have the gospel. And the gospel is showing me the heart of God, never more completely hidden by the excruciating sight of the cross, but never more deeply revealed who my God is to his very core. And with that, I will trust. Um, one scholar said, uh, one writer said, the last idol to fall is the idol of explanation, which means I will trust God when he explains everything to my satisfaction. But the rhetorical question brings us to, my goodness, who do we think we are, <laughs> the, the one giving advice to God? So uh, there's a book by that title by Dan Deutschlander, The Sainted Deutschlander, I love on that giving book. advice to God, which starts with this just whole humility of being in our proper place as his children. There's a God, we're not him, right? And so I think, I think that's the rhetorical force of, of maybe all these questions is uh, just to sort of deepen our involvement with that reality. With, let's just remember who we are and who he is. When I know what omniscience is like and omnipotence is like and eternality, you know, when I know these things and maybe I can tell, <laughs> tell God certain things, but as it is, I'm a creature. You know, he's the creator and maker and redeemer. Yeah, very good. And and the book that you referenced, uh, there's actually two two parts. Uh, there's two there's two volumes to that book mm, uh, mm -hmm. from Professor Deutschlander. And, and folks, I would recommend them. Uh, fantastic books. And speaking of rhetorical questions, the Apostle Paul he asks a lot of those. When you read Romans, folks, take note of just how often Paul asks a rhetorical question, and see if you can just kind of figure out in your own mind why is he asking this question? What's he driving at? Sticking here with Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15 through 17, here Isaiah measures the nations of the world up against the Lord. Professor, why is it helpful for us to see that the nations of the world do not in any way measure up to the Lord, as strong and powerful as they may be or may have been? Well, it would be such a distortion in our thinking if we had the Lord and Babylon, for example, kind of side by side in our minds as sort of mutual adversaries or something like that, when it's nothing could be further from the truth. The same is true of the devil. To think of him as God's opposite, well, he's opposite in terms of evil, but he's no match. He's just another creature, right? Um, 
So I think it so happens, the question is really relevant, relevant because it so happens that Babylon had an unusual run. So we said before, at the time of Isaiah's prophecy, Babylon isn't anything to be concerned about. But then Babylon has a meteoric rise to the world stage. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar shows up and just a powerful figure, conquers Egypt at Carchemish, and all of a sudden we got a whole new player in the stage. Well, Babylon would come down just as quickly after God used them for the chastisement of Israel. So an unusual run there, and I think it just illustrates what Isaiah is saying. The nations are a drop in the bucket. They're like a speck on the scale. And what I thought is, until I had children, I never really worried about the affairs of the world. It never really sort of kept me up at night that the world is an awful place and and uh, wars and rumors of wars circle around us. But then I went through a time in my life when having first having children was when I first thought about that, that what kind of world would they live in? Will they get to have a, a stable society to do what I've been able to do and pursue my vocation, have a family? And there were times I kind of began to wring my hands over that. And I found at that time, I think through a colleague actually, profound comfort from surely that the nations are a drop in the bucket. God lifts one up and raises and takes one down, all for the good of his church. He is in complete sovereign control, the one who, again, whose heart we know based on power of a different kind that shows up in Christ and the cross. And so it's, it's just a thing that Israel needs to see if all they see is what's intimidating or impressive about Babylon, you know? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great application as, as I think that through, uh, when, we are, when we are struck by this, this thought like the world is out of control or my world is out of control, uh, read Isaiah 40, 15 <laughs> through 17, and just think about those words. Those words assure us that, as you said, nothing could be further from the truth. God is in complete sovereign control. Let's go on. Verses 18 through 20. Uh, folks, please read these. Uh, how do these verses, 18 through 20, set up what comes next? Yeah, it's, it's the same sort of thing where I think the prophet is calling people, you know, not only with, with rhetorical questions that just make you kind of go inward and they kind of disturb you, um, but also, what should we say? He's trying to show them the absurdity the just true absurdity of the idols that are competing for their attention. And so what you get in Isaiah, also other places like Jeremiah, you get this just flat-out, full-on sarcasm about these idols, right? Um, Isaiah has a picture someplace of you're carrying the idol on your back, right? It's supposed to take care of you. It's your God, but you carry it around, and it's so heavy it stoops you over. And Isaiah has this picture of from a distance, it looks like the idols are, themselves are bowing down to the true God of Israel. So there's rich irony there. Uh, Jeremiah is, so you're going to take a block of wood, really, and in a cut and a half and use half to cook your supper and the other half make something to praise and worship. And so Isaiah goes for chapter after chapter on this, that, my goodness, you have to nail the idol down to its pedestal or it might fall over, right? It, it reminds me of something you see in C.S. Lewis often, which is, People are caught under some illusion of some kind, and it, he's like, if I could just get you to laugh and laugh at yourself, if I could, could just get you to see how absurd this situation really is, as a way, again, to clear the stage once again for 
who we are talking about when it comes to the God of Israel in comparison. So it's, you know, Isaiah, Isaiah is the one in the Old Testament, Old Testament who took the Hebrew language to its heights as far as just the poetry and the artistry. And so there's a lot going on there with Isaiah to, to um, admire, and he spends a lot of ink on this issue. Let's clear the stage of all that is false, that we can take a fresh view at who our God actually is and can have our hope awakened in that way. I found this quote. I'll share it with you and just uh, see if I can get a, a quick reaction from you. When humans attempt to penetrate spiritual reality without God's revelation, they are doomed to create gods in their own image. Yeah, gods that seem an awful lot like people. <laughs> yeah, right. People in, in their yeah, foibles and in their smallness and all those things. Very, very true. Verse 21 do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Verse 22, it continues. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. So verse 21, Isaiah is suggesting that the people are missing something. What are they missing? Yeah, I suppose in their hand wringing and having a struggle believing that they can be redeemed from captivity and restored. It just probably seems so implausible. I think the writer Isaiah is trying to evoke something in them that you know better than that. So I think it really is the, have you not heard? Have you not seen? So don't you have David still? Don't you still have Moses? Don't you have Ezekiel right there with you? Don't you have Jeremiah? Have you not heard? So you know better. You know better than this sort of cringing in fear before Babylon. I think it's trying to evoke that. I want to read verses uh, 22 through 24. And, and what I see here, Doctor, is that Isaiah is feeding the, the world more humble pie. I read verse 22. I'll read that again through 24. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. So Isaiah feeding the people humble pie, feeding the world humble pie. So here's the question. Why is humble pie good for our diet? <laughs> oh boy. Humble pie. I, hmm. I, th I think of it as kind of a wounding by that rebuke that's there, but a good wound, sort of, like Jesus saying to the disciples, to the disciples after coming the storm, why are you so afraid? You have little faith. I mean, that hurts a little bit, but there's something about being put in our place, in a proper place by God, something about remembering, we said before, there's a God and I'm not him. There's something actually very, ultimately very calming and very wholesome about that. That's sort of humbling. It reminds you of other places. There are many in Scripture that are like this. Like Job goes on for chapter to chapter questioning God about his circumstance. As we all know, then the Lord shows up in a storm and says, brace yourself like a man, Job. I'm going to question you and you'll answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth foundations and storms on for verse after verse after verse? And he doesn't answer Job's questions. He doesn't answer the questions about the, the why and so on. But it's just Job put in his place, and it's a, 
again, ultimately, ultimately a good place to be. Job says, I was asking things too wonderful to know. And he lets go of all those questions before the, before the wonderful reality of God. And so I think it's good to know I'm not God. It's good to know that I'm, because I'm not qualified for the job, it's good to know that there is another who is qualified. And he's revealed his very character to me in Jesus. And so that'd be how I think of it, that it's a relief to be humbled even if it hurts a little bit. Yeah, I, I think of the verse, uh, I think many of us know, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. How is this verse helpful to a skeptic? Yeah, it does make you think immediately about certain um, arguments for the existence of God. Of course you do. Cosmological arguments says, why is there something rather than nothing? And you, you have to look beyond matter, energy, space, and time to explain it. And so it can kind of trigger those things, um, which I like that. But what I really like even more than is, and maybe you're suggesting this, is I prefer to use the biblical version of those arguments and not have somebody who went to the university, let's say, have their own arguments kind of triggered by the version that they've dealt with um, in a philosophy class. And by the way, though, those arguments are, are robust. They're not so easy to get around when you really think about them and listen to philosophers. But I kind of think of the version that has a spirit married to it, because it's his word, is every house has a builder. It's the same kind of argument, right? Every house has a builder, but the builder of everything is God. Or I will praise him because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Or the classic Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So the skies pour forth their silent shouting of, he is the perpetual shouting of God's existence comes by the wonder of the created universe. And so I think it is very useful. We have on our side the natural knowledge of God. We know that it sleeps deep in some people and they suppress what they know. Um, but what we know is that we can say to people something like, you weren't wrong when you wondered at the night sky. You were not wrong that day when you looked up in awe and said, surely there's something more than this to explain this. And similarly, what conscience brings is um, we know there's a way we ought to be. We're not that way. This is natural knowledge of God. And you were not wrong the day you felt overcome by guilt, the day you felt you owed the universe an apology, so to speak. So these arguments are very, very useful and very robust. I like the what I call the biblical version of them. The other thing I noticed then is that what comes by the natural knowledge of God, though, uh, can tend to be a legalistic knowledge. So whoever's behind, whoever's behind the stars, he is awesome, and my conscience tells me, but I am not awesome. And so it can be a knowledge of I better get busy and better figure out how to please this God, whoever he is, and better go to work, you know. The thing about Isaiah 40 here is what's being revealed to us in view of the stars is really how kind God is at the same time and how personal this is, how he calls the stars by name and he leads them out like a shepherd. And so there's more to this even than you'll find in any of those kind of arguments, that there still is also the saturation of grace and mercy and for the people in Babylon. It, it's like if he can lead the stars out like a shepherd and knows their name, what about you? Will he have any trouble leading you out? Is anything too big for him to handle? Is anything too small for him to care about? And the answer is no. So that Isaiah kind of moves from the argument 
that we've all kind of thought about what, what the created universe is saying to us moves from there back to the need of this people to have comfort. And so it's really quite, quite an astonishing piece of, this, of the chapter, I would say. And verse 27, uh, two more rhetorical questions. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. I don't know if I'm, if I'm interpreting what Isaiah is getting at correctly, but, but I, I think, to me, he's, he's asking the people, why do you wonder about God's love for you? That's a very sure. common question that people have, don't they? Sure. Today, does God love me? Yeah, that is the most important question getting in the way for skeptics. So um, very, very true. If, if people fail to see God's love, where are they looking? Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose in Babylon, they're looking at Babylon and looking at the awesome human power and display, looking at the masses, looking at the armies. I guess today I, we'd say if people fail to see God's love, we know where they're not looking. Right. They're not looking at the cross. Right. So a fallen, chaotic world is presenting evidence, so to speak, to our senses all the time to reach the conclusion that they were apparently reaching, which is, my way is disregarded by my God. My cause is unknown to him. And so you're exactly right. To come to a different view and an assuring, comforting view, it is to look to the place where God's heart is on display. And once again, in the heart of Jesus, in his crucifixion, resurrection, and beyond, you see one who is not indifferent, not indifferent to our struggles and our sufferings. Um, not unconcerned. And so, boy, what a wonderful thing that is. Pagans have to run around all day long, this is, what, this is what Jesus says, and figure out, how do I get God to care about me? How do I get God's blessing? How do I get it? Um, well, we have the verse, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And it's the evidence is in the scarred hands of a risen Savior. And so we look to where God can be known, and we walk by faith and not by sight, and we worship the God who knows all things in effortless know knowing, in effortless knowing, and knows how best to care for us as well. And so, how hard do you want to be on these people that their eyes were drawn to these things that the eyes can see? It is a matter of a miracle of the Holy Spirit brought about by the Word of God that we can see more than that and have hope. And this chapter ends with some of the most beautiful words there are in Scripture, at least in my mind, starting in verse 28. Can I invite you, Dr. Paustin, to read these verses for us? Sure. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What stands out to you in those verses? Let's start there. I mean, there's so, there's so much in there. Is there a phrase or a, a word that just jumps out to you that, that really does it for you, that brings you the comfort that you need, that we all need? Well, I think if it's not getting ahead, it is that closing image uh, of the eagles. So I love this. I don't remember if you've ever talked about this. The, the thing about imagery in the scripture, 
Um, one scholar calls it the thisness of that and the thatness of this. So the question is, what does an ego have to do with hope? And what does hope have to do with an ego? And we can just, again, linger in that and unpack that. Maybe never say the last word again about it. But So like, how is the mercy of God like an ocean? How is an ocean like mercy? And we just need to settle in and let those things get a hold of us because there's such a power in the images and the metaphors that we live by. Another example is, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. Well, the Hebrew is, whoever touches you touches the little man in my eye, or in some places, the daughter in my eye, which is like, look in God's eye, look really close, and you'll see yourself reflected in there. And how long is he going to let someone touch that? I right? love that. That's why <laughs> we say, keep me as the apple <laughs> of your me. eye. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. And so I'm taking some time kind of unpacking just a love for the images. So we said in the last episode that it really is all flesh is grass, is the dominant image of the first part as far as what the human race is like. And so human strength runs out. Young men stumble and fall. And in counterpoint to that is to soar up on wings like eagles, that is to find a different kind of strength. So how is an eagle soaring like a person having hope? Um, the literal Hebrew here says, now what most translations say is very possible, but it happens to be that what it really says is they will lift up a wing. Those who hope in the Lord will lift up a wing like the eagles do, okay? So what that image might bring is you don't see an eagle up high in the sky flapping its hearts like it, its wings like crazy. You don't see that. They're just soaring. They're just carried. They're just lifted up upon the, and we would say, like we are lifted up on the powerful, precious promises of God. We're not flapping our wings like crazy, right? But we are being carried. So the imagery here often is of strength, it's of swiftness, um, it's often of care for young, as far as how the scriptures pour meanings into the bottomless image of the eagle here. But I think that's the main thing here, is the being lifted up. And so really, really quite beautiful. One of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. Do you, do you know that movie? It's been a long time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's a scene where Eric Little who's an athlete, athlete who wouldn't run on, on the Lord's Day. So he has to leave his event and just not compete that day. There's a scene of him reading this text in in a church someplace in Paris, right? While they set that against scenes of the athletes who are running, who are stumbling in the steeplechase. And it's just a beautiful thing to think about um, how meaningful that verse is in that regard. Young men stumble and fall. Human strength runs out. That's his human capability. And when it does, there's another another kind of strength that comes by learning how to draw from the well of the Word of God and from Christ the strength and hope that we need and to be renewed by it. And so I think that's even a preview of the third part of Isaiah's book again, where we're heading still through the days of atonement, through the Messiah, Christ Jesus, and Isaiah 53, to a great and glorious day when all things are restored. And, and uh, it's really quite wonderful. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, I have a closing thought. Oh, please. please. <laughs> okay? I want to give you the last word. Oh, okay. but while I'm thinking of it, I'd love to have you back again because uh, you're so, you're so uh, knowledgeable with these words and, and you do such a beautiful job of explaining these beautiful words for us. And so I'd love to have you back. And if you agree, Isaiah 53, boy, I, I think that'd be, a, <laughs> okay. that'd be a section of scripture. That would be good for me too. To roll just up our sleeves really and talk immerse, about those verses. Let, let, to really immerse in that. Let's let you have the closing thought here. Final word on Isaiah 40. Sure. It is that 
Babylon can come to symbolize all the forces of evil that are lined up against us in hostility with us. There's a certain kind of captivity that while I live in this world, I am harassed by the devil. I'm harassed by the world's relentless hostility to me and what I believe, and I'm harassed by my own sinful nature. And we might, forgetting that this is temporary and so on, forgetting that all God's purposes are good, we might wonder, why must I be harassed constantly, daily, by the devil, the world, and my own flesh? And just one answer is, it is so that I might learn how to hear the gospel above all the turmoil of the world and devil and flesh, learn how to hear the gospel and apply it to myself under these circumstances. And as we said just before, to draw on the well that is Christ and his word for the hope that I need. So that's how I think of this. And a good God knows when best to end it. And the promises of Isaiah on that regard are simply astonishing. And so thank you, Mark. This has been been a treat for me just to speak about the scriptures in this way. Thank you. And uh, thank you for your time and your wisdom today. And folks, thank you for listening. I'd like to close with this verse from Isaiah chapter 40. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Thank you for listening to Impact, a ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. If you have a question or feedback to share, send an email to impact at saint-andrew-online.org. Please tell your friends and family about Impact and keep this ministry in your prayers. Impact is new every Monday, and all past episodes are available. The greater you understand Scripture, the greater impact it will have on your life.